Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out. We're going to be uh, turning to Mark chapter 10. We've been going through this series for the last couple of weeks to ask you to consider several questions as you begin your new year. Questions that we'd like for you to answer. A couple of weeks ago, we started with the question of, uh, do you see yourself honestly? Uh, Would you dare to see yourself in the reflection of God's love for you? And how would that transform your life? Then last week, Dave came up and took us through the question, what do you hunger for? And I don't know if you were here last week, but uh, if you were, you know how challenging that was and even piercing it was. And I was at lunch this week with one of our elders, one of our leaders here, and we were talking about what Dave was teaching on, and he began to share with me uh, what God was doing in his own life as it pertained to what Dave shared last week. And I thought, man, this is just good. Y'all need to hear this. So uh, Hal, come on up. Where are you, Hal? This is Hal Garrett. And uh, Hal, yep, there you go. Give him a shout out. You're looking good today, Hal. Like that shirt? All right. Two-tone. Hal is one of our elders here. And uh, if you're not familiar with that term, uh, that's another question, maybe one of two so far that you're already wrestling with. That's good. But he's part of our leadership. And we were talking this week, Hal, and you were telling me about a book that you were reading to your son and how that kind of pertained to uh, what Dave was talking about last week. Can you, can you share that story with us? Um, yeah, a little bit of the, uh, the uh, backstory on that is probably a year ago, probably over the last year, I'd say, a lot of uh, uh, friends have, um, I feel like the Lord's kind of given me space to uh, grieve a season in my life that ended about 10 years ago. Um, it was my pursuit of baseball. And uh, we have been reading um, C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Yeah. And um, in the Chronicles of Narnia series. Yes. Uh, and I've never read it. Um, and it's just been a good read a chapter night. And it just so happens we were on last week, chapter 14. And there was a passage um, when the the men on the journey are getting ready to um, sail to Aslan's country in the east. Um, I thought I'd already cried this out. Sorry. Uh, and uh, the little mouse in the story, uh, his name is Reepicheep. And uh, he says that uh, he will sail as far as the Dawn Treader, which is the ship, will carry him. And when that ship gives out, he's going to get in his little canoe and he's going to paddle as far as he can go. And when that, when that takes him as far as he goes, he's going to jump in the water and he's going to paddle with his four legs until he tires out, either on the shore of Aslan's country or he is going to die and sink in the water with his, with his nose to the east. Um, and <clears throat> uh, through the words of, a, a, of another friend here in the, uh, in the congregation, um, you know, encouraged, kind of put some language to that and um, realized that uh, in, this, in this season of learning to grieve a... Uh, 
a 20-year journey for me. Mm. Uh, I realized that I had set my, um, that that was my, uh, he would call it a telos, or the, the, the focus or the purpose or the end of my life. And I had set for 20 years every piece of my existence towards achieving um, the goal of playing Major League Baseball. And um, that died about 11 years ago. And um, it's, it, it's really last week where that all came full circle and I realized that I had actually, um, in grieving that loss, I realized it wasn't the loss of the game. I do miss that. But I was grieving the fact that I had placed um, eternity on the weight of shoulders that could not bear up. Mm. Meaning that you'd placed, as Dave talked about last week, that in all of us, God has placed the weight of eternity and that you were pay, placing the burden on that, on baseball to give you something. Uh, yeah, I uh, had, uh, yeah, that, that was my end. That was what I was paddling hard for. Mm. And I think uh, I drowned in the sea looking on a horizon where no sun was dawning because it could not carry me where I wanted to go. Wow. So what's the, do, what's the Lord doing with that, bro? Uh, Why would he bring that up? I mean, that seems like ancient history. Um, I really think that he is, he is dawning a new and greater hope. Hmm. Um, he brought me to Philippians 3... I believe it's 3.8 or 3.12. It's right in there. And it says that I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus has taken hold of me. Um, and he is, he, is, um, he is lifting my gaze from his hands to his face and showing me that he is the end. He's not a means to my end. But he is the end of himself. Wow. Wow. Thank you, Hal. Thank you. Yeah, tell him thanks. <clears throat> so we're in Jason's deli, and we're both crying like babies as we're talking about this story. <clears throat> and I encourage you that if you uh, don't know Hal and you want to hear more of that story, uh, I know he would love to share it with you. You know, but it's the process of uh, us saying to you this morning is that we really believe you're not going to be different when you leave here today. It's not because the service is going to be so life-transforming, but we really be believe where the Lord shows up, he begins to shake things. And we're not the same when he shakes. So let's let him shake a little bit more this morning. And let me ask you this question that I want you to wrestle with, which is the kissing cousin of last week's question, but it goes in just a little bit different direction. And that is that every one of you I don't care how poor you are or, you know, whether you're a student that has been eating peanut butter and jelly for the last three weeks just to get by or whether you're living in a mansion on the hill, all of us have stuff. All of us have stuff that we've collected, that we own, stuff that we value, stuff that we don't value. But the question that I want you to wrestle with today is not how much stuff you have, but what stuff has you? What stuff has you? 
You know, ever since we were kids, I know you've heard this, and if you've been in church for any amount of time, you've heard sermons on greed, and we know that it's not good to be greedy. We know that we should share, that we should not hold too tightly to the things that we have in our lives, that we should be generous people, that we should be kind, and we should be giving. I mean, if you go to the movies at all, you know, and there's always good guys and there are bad guys, and bad guys always seem to be really greedy, don't they? You know, they just want it all. And so we know that I don't want it all. Like, I don't want to be so consumed with the stuff that I would like to have in my life that it absolutely consumes me to the place where it makes me like a villain in a Batman movie, you know? But at the same time, I want stuff. Like, don't you? Like, at the same time, when it comes time for you to buy a car, do you not choose a car based on stuff that you like, right? So we kind of live in this vague kind of in-between place where we say, okay, I'm not going to let my stuff have me, but I'm going to let it have a little bit of me, all right? Because I want a little bit of it. I'm not going to become the villain that's all greedy and doesn't share and tells the other kids you can't touch my toys, but at the same time, I'm going to have toys. And they're going to be good toys. They're going to be toys I like, like cappuccinos, But I want to challenge you this morning, and I want us to step away from this Christian idea that a Christian either can't have everything or nothing, or Christians can't have everything. And I want to, I want to put that down, and I want to take us into the dark journey of why would Jesus ever challenge us about the stuff that has us? Why does he even care? There's something very dark here, because there's something more that we need to talk about than a behavior change. See, grab a hold of this. I think that God has put in each of us from birth incredible affections. I mean, great affections. He's put in each one of us passionate desires and also deep, deep love. But see, when our greatest affections and our greatest desires and even our greatest loves rest on something, and when I say something, I mean something, Cars, homes, jobs, respect, reputation, success, relationships. That when my greatest affections, my greatest desires, and my greatest loves even falls on other people. Or get this, or my dreams. That when my greatest affections, my greatest desires, and my greatest loves fall onto a dream of something I hope is going to happen in the future. And that may be a relational hope. That may be a success hope. That may be, I'm going to do P90X and get ripped. Yes. And those muscles, I will possess them and be like Randy. All this, when they begin to possess us, Our world becomes very small and our world becomes very stagnant and it gives us a false belief that we are in control. Let me explain. Uh, I was with uh, one of you this week and we were eating some lunch and uh, I do lunch a lot and almost every day. And we were talking and he does research over at Vanderbilt with mice and we were kind of talking about the ethical nature of... uh, you know, killing mice and how many are killed a year. And anyway, whole nother sermon. And uh, it 
took me, I found this article about this laboratory that went out of business. They had lost their funding and they had a bunch of mice they hadn't done anything with. So the researchers decided to set these mice free. And so they took them out into a field and they're thinking, we, we're going to give these mice their freedom. And they open the cage and they're just waiting for the mice to go running out. And what did the mice do? They stayed right there in the cage. They were born in the cage. They lived in the cage. And I can only imagine that when the gates were open and they were looking out on this big field, this big world, this huge forest, and this freedom like they had never even possibly dreamed of, that they shrunk away from the door and stepped back and said, I think I'll take my cage. And anytime we allow stuff to have us, we're taking a step away from the door, back a little deeper into our cage, because we're shrinking our world to a world that we are under the false belief that I can control it. Shrink my world down to a place where I've got the answers, I know what's going to happen, and I can control the outcome, or believe I can control the outcome. So what's at stake for us? Let me tell you what's at stake with what we're talking about today whether you're going to spend your life living in a cage or whether you're going to dare to be one of those that will step out into the land of the free. Oh, we need like an anthem playing in the background now. Now you have a flag. <laughs> Glory. See, Jesus understood this. And so when he's calling us not to let stuff possess us, what he's calling us to is a freedom that we can't comprehend within the cage, but he's saying, trust me and then follow me out into that freedom. But it's wild, it's expansive, and let me tell you, as, as cage dwellers and as door gazers, the idea of stepping out into the wild expanse of the freedom of God's love for me and Christ's love for me and the life of living in that love is scary as hell. And I don't mean that like in a non-biblical way, you know, I mean that in the hell and the, all right. He cursed in church. Let me explain this. Because when I'm in the cage and I want to control everything, you cannot be in love and be in control. It's an illusion. And any time that you choose, I'm going to live in a love that I can control, that is not love. Because love will not be controlled. It is dangerous, it is wild, it is untamed, and it will not be tamed by you. Trust me. C.S. Lewis, he put it this way. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. You need to wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, small, it begins to change. It will not be broken. It will, not be, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, unredeemable. That's love in the cage. Christ is calling us to something bigger. Let's go to Mark chapter 10, because I want to introduce you to a guy who was possessed by the things that he thought he possessed. His stuff had him. Some of you are familiar with the story as the story of the rich young ruler. Or the rich young man. Chapter 10, verse 17. Let's read it. As Jesus started on his way, 
A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answers. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked him in and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So we have this story where this guy is coming to Jesus and trying to figure out what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God. And if, if you've been around church, this guy gets a bad rap. I mean, you know, by and large, you know, he's kind of put in the category of kind of a loser. But I want to tell you that there's a lot to commend about this guy. I mean, he comes to Jesus, right? I mean, he starts out great. He's coming to Jesus. He runs to him, in fact. And when he sees Jesus, he falls down on his knees. And he's pleading with Jesus, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So, I mean, there's sincerity in what he's doing. I mean, he seems to be sincere. He didn't have to do this. Nobody's compelling him to come to Jesus, right? The second thing is, is that, I mean, he was a good man. Jesus listed commandments, and he said to him, all these I've kept. I mean, I'm sure that in his neighborhood, people said, yeah, he's a good guy. You know, I mean, he takes good care of his family. I mean, he's generous with his friends. He lets us borrow his lawnmower. You know, he tips 20%. You know, he's a good guy. He's an Auburn fan. Okay, maybe he wasn't. And... And then on top of all that, it says in the text that Jesus looked at him and loved him. So here's a guy that is sincere about his search for eternity. He's saying, hey, I'm really trying to live my life in a way that's good. And I'm loved by the Lord. But something was going on here. And let me just point out three things. And then we're going to go into a season of you examining your own heart. Because he was possessed by the things that he thought he possessed, it shrunk his world. In other words, his call to freedom was too terrifying for him to leave his cage. Let's understand this. The first thing that got shrunk was his view of eternity. Because he viewed eternity as something to own, something to purchase. It was kind of like his get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, that eternity became this ticket It became like life insurance or maybe death insurance. You know, I remember when I was in high school, I had no desire for spiritual things. Uh, You know, I just didn't. It just was not there. But I did have a desire for girls. And there was this cute little redhead that, uh, that I had this desire to be with. And, I mean, it was one of those kind of infatuations where she could have invited me to do anything And I'm like all in. Like she could have said, hey, I'm going to have oral surgery today without Novocaine. Do you want to go and have it with me? I would have said, yes, I'm in. And so uh, she got real close to that because she invited me to her church's revival. They had brought a special preacher in to preach a revival. And um, so I go with her. And this guy, you know, is just, he's preaching hell and damnation. And 
and just going crazy. And, uh, you know, he's talking about that if you're not a Christian, you're going to be deep fried and devil's drool, you know, and stuff. And I'm like, I don't want that. And he said, hey, if you want to get, uh, keep from going to hell, then walk the aisle and come up here and pray a prayer with me. So I'm kind of sitting there and I'm weighing this, this option. I'm looking at the redhead. She obviously cares about what this guy's saying. And he's saying to me, heaven or hell? Well, hell sounds horrible. I don't want hell. So heaven, what do I get for heaven? You know, he didn't talk about that. But I knew that all I had to do was walk 15 feet and repeat after him, in heaven. No deep fried hell. I walked it. I'm like, yeah, that's a deal. So we went back the next night, walked it again. Double, next night, dad gummit, three, the hat trick. I'm in. You know, a lot of you have experiences like that because I wasn't so sure about Jesus. Matter of fact, I didn't know who this Jesus was. I just didn't want to go to hell. I just wanted to know that when I died, I wasn't going to some scary, dark place. But listen to what Jesus says about eternity. This is in John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life. Okay, is he talking about eternity? It's pretty clear. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, he's praying, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Do you hear that? Jesus is saying that eternal life is to know him and to know his father. And what's radical about this word know is because we can't comprehend it in our own language, but in the original language, it's the same word that's used for the kind of intimacy that a husband and wife share. It's to know intimately. It's to know that you know that you know. It is to know. It's being invited into the wildness. I mean, eternity, knowing that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, seems so safe and so controllable because I know what I did to get it. Now that I got it, I'm secure. Little cage. But then when Jesus looks at me and says, no, eternity is to know me. Come on out here. Come out of the cage. Step into the wonder of my love. That's why it's so uncomfortable when we read the Song of Solomon. And we read this as God's love letter to us to where he says, I kiss you with my lips and it's sweeter than wine. Gee, woo, God kissing? What's that about? That kind of love, it's the language of romance. And I'm going to tell you something that's true about everybody in this room. There is something in you that aches for romance. Some of you are so cynical you've turned it off. Some of you have turned it way up. All right, can I just take a detour here? I know this is going to be like he talked way too long. It's okay. But I am just so glad that I don't date anymore. I just want to speak to all of you that are dating. I am so sorry for you. <laughs> I mean, I kind of see dating, I call it like the Mexican restaurant bathroom review. You want me to explain that? <clears throat> when you date, okay, this has nothing to do with the Bible. This is me now, all right? All me. When you date, there's this deep sense of constant evaluation. You know, is this person sane? You know, is this person hiding secrets? Did they just get out of prison? You know? And you're just kind of wondering, and everything's kind of a telltale sign. And you're just kind of looking for the outside to give you clues about the inside. Hence, when I go to a Mexican restaurant and I go to a bathroom in a Mexican restaurant and it is filthy and that's the part of the restaurant that they let me see, 
I kind of get nervous about what they're about to bring out of the kitchen, all right? For all of you that are going to eat Mexican afterwards. So when that guy you're dating has a bunch of food in his teeth and he doesn't seem to notice or care, mm-hmm. No, I just... What's so dangerous about dating is because we long for the romance, but it's scary. Because who is this guy? Who is this girl? Are they safe? Are they psychotic? You know? Are they possessive? Are they damaging? And it's scary. Because any invitation to intimacy is scary because we know that we have to be vulnerable to be intimate. And when we're vulnerable, bad things happen. We get hurt, but we long for it. You know, Gerald May, he's talking about romance in the context of God's love for us and his call for us. He says, romance reminds us of free and beautiful moments of just being. Moments that are themselves experiences of falling in love. Falling in love with everything, with life, with being. Romance causes us to play, to dance, to become as little children. No longer, no wonder we long for it. Is it possible that God put this desire in our hearts and we cheapen it when we attach that desire to things? Is it possible that when I let stuff possess me, it keeps me in the cage and I turn the volume way down to God's invitation of romance to come step into the eternity of being known and knowing. That kind of God is uncontrollable. The Jesus that stays at church, that's controllable. The Jesus that follows you out and says, where are you going? What are we going to do today? Hey, let's just hang. Are you kidding me? Don't crowd The second thing that we see in this story is that being possessed by things shrunk this man's understanding of what being good means. (laughs) You know, in the story we see where Jesus looks at him and challenges when he says, hey, good teacher, and he says, hey, don't call me good, right? The only thing or the only one that's good is the Father in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to give him these commandments, and he says, yes, I've kept them all. And what we see is that he was so addicted to his view of his own goodness that even when Jesus challenged him with it, he couldn't see it. See, when I live in the small story, when I live, when I'm possessed by the things around me, I live in a very small view of what good is. And I am a master of justification. I'm the master of believing that I did nothing wrong. Or maybe I did some things wrong, but they're not as bad as what everybody else does. And I define goodness into a definition that I can control. Give you an example. I was with a friend of mine. This was years ago. And we were talking about our families. And, you know, and he, have you ever been with somebody, if you're like me and you've come from a crazy whacked out family, and you're with somebody who came from a really good family and they start telling their stories, it kind of shuts you up. Yeah, 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 that's great. Yeah. And he was saying, you know, what I loved about my dad is I never, he says, never in my life have I ever seen my dad lose his temper. And he equated that to, my dad is good. And I left that conversation kind of shamed because I've lost my temper before. And so we go on this youth mission trip. And I'm thinking about this, okay? You know, losing your temper, you've got to be cool. So I'm with 30 junior high kids for a week in the inner city. And I'm thinking, be cool, man. Don't ever lose your temper. Impossible. 
All right, so I'm just smoldering, you know, and I'm pushing it all down, pushing it all down. On the last night while we were there, they all got up while I was asleep and took all the face paint that we had left over and painted the brand-new church van into a 1960s love wagon. And the paint wouldn't come off. You know, I was able to keep cool on the outside, but there was nothing but murder on the inside. When I set up standards of what good is, it means that I'm staying in a box that I can control. And Jesus explodes that box in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, you didn't commit adultery? How about lusting? You haven't murdered? How about hatred? And why would he do this? Because Jesus wants us to understand the vastness of our need. Because it's only when we understand the vastness of our need do we understand the limitless of his grace for us. It's only in our desperate need that we understand his great provision. And that's why in verse 15 of this same chapter, he's got a bunch of kids around him. And people are trying to get the kids away from Jesus, and Jesus stops them and he says, hey, 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 listen up to me. He says, I'm telling you this, and this is true. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter into it. Bingo. What is a child? A child is shamelessly, continually living in a place of need. I know. I've had them. They can't do anything for themselves. They need us to do everything, especially when they're real little. Why would Jesus call us into that place? Because it is his glory to express his love of providing everything we need for life and godliness. But when I stay in the cage and say, no, 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 I don't need that. I got it covered. You see how we shrink the world that we live in when we let things possess us. And then finally, when we're possessed, we shrink love to a cost instead of an invitation. Jesus says to him, sell everything and give it to the poor and follow me. You know, he was consumed with the cost. Sell everything, give it to the poor, that you don't even hear in the story that he makes any comments about the invitation to come and follow me. So let me ask you this. Let's dive into your heart. What kind of love? Yes, there we go. Lord, repent. Walk the aisle. I mean, let's think about this just for a second, because there's no way possible that Jesus today could be saying to any of us, go sell everything and give it to the poor. Or could he? Because what kind of love demands everything? Your kind of love, that's what kind of love. Isn't it? I mean, come on, I don't have to answer that question for you. You know. What kind of love demands everything? Only true love. This isn't a call to sacrifice. This is an invitation to leave the cage. 
is the invitation to leave behind those fears that we have squelched by our possessions and by our dreams and by our hopes that our relationships are going to fill us up and make us happy. And so we stay within the cage constantly demanding from our things the weight of eternity, like Hal was talking about, constantly being disappointed, but at least it's our disappointment, and at least the disappointment that I'm familiar with that's within my cage, and I'm going to stay in here. And Jesus comes along and says, hey, why don't you give that up and come follow me? And we see it as a threat and a sacrifice, like the rich young ruler, and we walk away sad because we are wealthy people because we have surrounded ourselves with the things that we think are going to give us life and prop us up and make us whole. And they don't, do they? What would happen if we didn't hear that as a sacrifice and an invitation to give it all up? What if that was an invitation to come and get it all? What if that's what it was? Because isn't that what it is? I mean, Jesus lived that life for us. I mean, Jesus, didn't he leave everything? Didn't he leave all his position, all his power, all his prestige as Lord of lords and King of kings and come in the form of a man and to give his life on the cross. And why did he do that? So that he could give us the invitation at the door of the cage to say, come and be free. Come dance with me in the wildness of this field that we're living in. Even in fact, there's a story that Jesus uses. He says there's a man that's working in a field and he finds this great treasure. And he's marveled. It's the greatest treasure he's ever seen. And so he closes it back up and he buries it and he goes and he sells everything that he has so that he can come and buy the field. Why? Because he wants the treasure. And what's that story about? Go back and read it. It's about Jesus. He's saying we're the treasure. That we're the ones that he found and dug up from the dirt. And he's saying, and he goes and he sells everything he has. He gives his life for you, for me so that he can stand at the door of our cage and say, put all that stuff down. Come on. Come with me into the vastness, the expanse of my love. Don't live in the shrunk world of those things that have you. That's why Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life to the full. See, it was Jesus that was calling this man into what he made him for. And it was this man's fear that he could not live without his stuff that shrunk love to nothing more than cost analysis. Do you understand now why John, the apostle, calls God love? Because he's freeing us from a small, shrunken love to the vast, limitless, wild horizons of his love. Let me give you one more quote from Gerald May. I love this. Because any of you that believe that stepping out of this cage and putting down your stuff and stepping into an invitation is easy or it's not scary, love is delicious confusion. I love that. It reveals our most extreme limitations and our most holy aspirations. All in one impossible, agonizing, and wonderful experience of life. So there's my case before you. A man possessed by his stuff shrunk his world to where he turned what? He turned eternity into something to possess. He turned goodness into something that he could attain. And he turned the invitation of love into something that was too expensive for him to pay. What will you do with it today? So we're about to go into a season of song, some prayer. And here's my question for you. 
if you dare. If you dare to hear the latch on your small cage opening, answer this question. What possesses you? Let me ask it a different way. What has you that you cannot live without? Is it a relationship? Is it the hope of a relationship? Is it stuff? Is it reputation? Is it success? What is it that you are convinced you cannot live without that? Our most possessive loves are our most desperate loves because we can't live without them and they take away all our freedom. So what is so wrapped in fear that you could never leave it and leave the cage? What is the small world that has restricted you from the vastness of Christ's love? What has you? And during this time of song and meditation, will you put it down? Will you say, Lord, I'm going to just lay that down. And yes, I'll come and follow you. Well, this is the part where you and Jesus need to do some stuff. So uh, let me close in prayer and introduce this time of uh, singing meditation. Lord, uh, (laughs) we are masters at turning everything that we love into something we can get something from. We turn them into addictions. We turn them into prisons. We turn them into things that we can control or we think we can control. And there's not a person in this room, Father, that doesn't have something that they've let take hold of them. Something that's that's let them live in a shrunken small cage when the door is open and you're inviting us into the redemptive work of your Holy Spirit through your Son, Jesus Christ. To not only be forgiven and set free, but to live in the vastness of your tremendous love for us. And so, Lord, I know that there's nobody in here that, that is free from that. But we need to start with, please, Holy Spirit, come and bring your revelation. Open our eyes to see what you're calling us to put down. And let us not see it as a sacrifice. Help us to genuinely see it as an invitation to a new life. Life with you. Come and speak to us, Lord. We, your servants, are listening.